Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is a coldly enthralling, long-form knockout. A majestic mob epic with ice in its veins. That's courtesy of former cinephile guest and one of the best film critics in the country, Owen Gleiberman of Variety. Here's another one. This is the Scorsese of silence, patient and methodical, and it brings in a subtle agony from De Niro. One might have assumed the actor could no longer summon. That is from A.A. Dowd of the A.V. Club. And also, this one is from Perry Nemiroff from Collider Video. A highly ambitious crime epic from a dream team delivering standout work all around. De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci are phenomenal, as is the work of editor Thelma Schoonmaker, who makes a story that spans decades and clocks seem utterly seamless. How about one more? Chris Evangelista of Slash Film. This is not Goodfellas. This is not Casino. This is Scorsese at its most reflective, crafting a masterwork that finds the filmmaker reflecting on everything he's done and what it's all amounted to. The results are breathtaking. That's right. The rave reviews are in for Martin Scorsese's Irishman, a film which has been long gestating, long years in the making. And I would say for myself, a film I've waited my entire lifetime for. Uh, we're going to talk primarily about The Irishman this week. Our, also, our Mount Rushmore is going to be about Martin Scorsese films, which is awfully incredibly difficult for me to do, narrowed it all down just to four films. And we'll also focus on The Sopranos, The Bada Binge, the first three episodes of Season 6, uh, Part 1. But of course, like I said, we're going to have no guests because there's just so much time I want to devote here to The Irishman. So, you know, for perspective here, like the, these are my guys. And everyone says, you know, who's your favorite superhero? I mean, I, I don't give... Uh, Choices like my brother, like Spider-Man or people throwing out the Avengers. Like I would say uh, Martin Scorsese, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. These are my superheroes. These are my guys. And for those new to the podcast, I did indeed plunk down $450 for tickets to opening night to the New York Film Festival, which was September 27th this past Friday, along with tickets to 10 uh, 10 other tickets. You can use you know individual tickets for 10 movies, or you can get pairs for five movies, whatever you wish. But obviously, everybody was doing this just because they can get tickets for opening night. And unless you're a college student, uh, unless you're somebody who takes the week off of work, if you've got a job, you've got a family, there's no way you're going to watch you know 10 movies in seven days. So they're very smart the way they do this, and for good reason, because all of us know The Irishman is what it counts. And like I said, this is the film we all want to see. So I took the advice of my friend Rob Lemley, who said, please, get there early. I do not want to hear any stories about you fighting traffic. And all of a sudden, there was a disaster, et cetera. So Lem was right. Left the house at 120, living now in the great borough of Hohokus, New Jersey. Incredible. I still can't believe 30 minutes you're in New York City, one of the greatest cities in the world. This is my good fortune now where my life is. So uh, 40 minutes, literally door-to-door, to get to Alice Tully Hall, which, as Joe knows, is about uh, 65th, Columbus Circle, that area. So park the car, 2 o'clock, I walk up, and I, literally, I'm starting to hyperventilate because they've got all the posters set up. So they've got a poster just of Pesci, just one of Pacino, one of De Niro, and also the Irishman. And there's just such buzz. You can feel everybody there is so fired up for this. And they've got um, tickets there, you know, individually by your last name. So let's say A to G or, you know, T to Z, that kind of thing. So I walk up, make sure, okay, yeah, V for work. But it's already on my phone, so they can just scan it, so it's fine. That was my other fear I had. I had several fears I was driving. One, I said, what if there's an accident? What if, two, I'm in an accident, somebody hits my car, also I'm unconscious, I'm going to miss this film. Three is my friend Scott Rogowski texts me, like, I hope, he texts me, like, just as I was getting to the parking lot, he was like, I hope you're already in line. And I was like, oh my God, what if there's a line? He's right, what if I, I can't get in? But, of course, that was a, a foolish thought, because the tickets were, of course, given out, um, you know, it was assigned seating, so it's not like if you show up whatever time, you're okay. 
But yeah, all those fears are in my head. And then at that moment, um, I was like, what if my phone died? Like for some reason, like, oh my God, that'd be the worst possible situation. Like, oh, my ticket's on my phone. Wait, the phone's gone or I lose my phone or I break my phone or whatever. So with all these, uh, you know, horrible, horrible thoughts going through my head, I was just happy. I got to the theater, like I said, a little bit after two o'clock Eastern. Movie's playing at three o'clock Eastern. Doors opened at 2.30. Uh, which is where you can go to the bathroom, which all of us knew, listen, this is going to be a three and a half hour film. Make sure you get to that bathroom quickly. But uh, that emotion there when you're walking to the movie, I'm like, it's like the Super Bowl, man. Like, I mean, I, like I said, I, I haven't just waited a few years. I've waited a lifetime for this film. You know, Goodfellas is one of my favorite movies. And, you know, my eldest son is named after Scorsese. I have my other boy, Shaz De Niro. I got Maz Pacino. I mean, listen, they, these guys are not just heroes. I'm fired up. And thankfully, producer Joe texts me and says, hey, turn your phone off. Be- don't, don't check Twitter is what Joe said. I texted Joe, hey, I'm here. He's like, all right. And he said, uh, you know, don't check Twitter. Some reviews are coming in, which I was astonished by. I said, hang on a second. I'm at the world premiere. How could this be? Uh, but as I later discovered, 9 a.m. was, in fact, the first critic screening. 3 p.m. is where I was the first world premiere for the public. And then 8 p.m. was the industry screening. Screening and, um, you know, you literally could look to your right, and there's Steven Spielberg wearing a tuxedo, that kind of thing. Uh, so then, of course, sent a message to my brother. My cousin's been so fired up. My cousin Zahid gave me a heart attack because he said, you know, because I said, I'm ready for the greatest film of all time. He's like, well, you might want to temper expectations. I'm like, oh my God, maybe he read some reviews. The movie stinks. And I was like, oh my God, Joe's right. I got to turn my phone off here. Let's just focus. Because then there was that heartbreaking feeling. You literally go from hyperventilating, like, I can't believe I'm actually in this situation. Okay, thankfully, I, you know, I avoided any accidents. There was no nightmare. I'm actually here. Two, okay, make sure you go to the bathroom. I don't want to suffer that painful feeling of having to have empty a bladder for four hours. Uh, and then three, I said, what if, what if this is like Scorsese's Heaven's Gate? You know, famously, Michael Cimino film, you know, he won Best Director for The Deer Hunter, and they lost his mind. He made Heaven's Gate. It was a horrific movie, and it just, you know, changed cinema forever. Like, everybody's got a bad egg in the bunch, okay? Marty hasn't had a jaw-drumping bomb since New York, New York, which was in the late 70s. But Silence, which was made for a paltry budget, relatively speaking, $30, $40 million, it grossed like $6 million. Like, it was a huge bomb in relation to budget, and it only got one Academy Award nomination, Best Cinematography. Maybe just made Maybe after Paramount turned him down with a $100 million budget, he went to Netflix and Ted Sarandos gave him $160 million and said, okay, fine. And drunk with power, he made some self-indulgent bloated film, which is three and a half hours. And now Pacino, De Niro, and Pesci are a bunch of like old curmudgeons. And as one of the people joked at the Comedy Central roast of Alec Baldwin, you know, what was it about these guys trying to pee for three and a half hours? Like, what kind of movie is this? And I'm like, oh my God, maybe the CGI is horrific because there was already some criticism over the trailers. People saying, oh, the CGI it looks terrible. Like, how can they make a movie like this? So I'm fighting all these fears. And I said, oh, God, just go with it. Please, God, please allow this to be a great film. And then it was wonderful to sit with people you don't even know, of course, strangers. And uh, a guy and a girl next to me, and the one woman saw me stretching up my back. She's like, oh, you have a bad back, too? I said, yeah, I mean, it's not great. It's my fault. I just don't stretch enough. But yeah, three and a half hours is going to be crazy. She's like, oh, me, too. Oh, my God, I got to stretch out the back here. Woman next to me as well. I said, listen, do you think Scorsese's here? She's like, I don't know. I said, listen, the 8 p.m. showing, of course, that's for the world. Like I said, Spielberg's going to be there. George Lucas is going to be here. Francis Ford Coppola's going to be in the building. I said, for 3 p.m., I go, I'm hoping Scorsese's here. She's like, yeah, I would think so. So sure enough, we have somebody that come out. And they did a little quick little introduction. Then uh, Ken Jones, he's you know, in charge of the New York Film Festival. And he's a longtime friend of Marty's. And he says, all right, here he is, Martin Scorsese. We're like, oh, thank God. First big big announcement. There is Marty. And he's unbelievable. He comes out 5'5", five, five, fired up, big energy. And he announces members of the cast that are there. So first he announces this guy I've never heard of. And he's only in the movie one scene, although he is funny. He comes out. Whoever the hell this guy is. Then another guy comes out. Don't know who that guy is. Uh, Catherine Narducci, I know. Of course, if you're a Sopranos fan, she is Artie Bucco's wife. So I'm like, oh, great. Catherine Narducci's in the movie. Awesome. Then he says Sebastian Maniscalco, who, again, I, I'm aware of the name. 
Uh, I know he's a comedian. I haven't seen the episode there with Seinfeld, but I know who he is. I'm like, all right, he comes up, big red suit. I'm like, all right, this guy's making an appearance. And that is Bobby Cannavale. I love Bobby Cannavale. I met Bobby Cannavale when I went and saw Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross on Broadway when Pacino played the Shelly the Machine role and Cannavale played the Ricky Roma role. Met Cannavale outside afterwards with my wife. And I said, listen, man, I loved you in the station agent. He was like, oh, thanks, buddy. Got a picture with him. He's awesome. So I love Cannavale. He's there. Next, Ray Romano. I'm like, all right, Ray Romano. Met him before, by the way, at the uh, thanks to Ben Lyons at the Jimmy Kimmel after party where Ray Romano was leaving the Oscars party. I was walking in, but then I made that stupid move of turning around and ran back as if he hadn't seen me, as if I was then walking in. And I was like, oh, hey, Ray, I can't wait to see the Irishman. And I remember at the time, this was two years ago, he's like, oh, well, you better wait. It's going to be a couple of years. Ray Romano was right. Took a while with the post-production and all the uh, headaches and so forth. So Ray's there. Uh, then... I think at this point it was Joe Pesci. Now we're losing our minds. Of course, everyone has their phones out, which as I do too. And I'll put it on my uh, Instagram where you can see me there, Adnan Esferk or Twitter, uh, Adnan Esferk or Cinephile Pod. And uh, Pesci's there. Now we're losing our minds. That's Al Pacino. Okay, now we've literally just screaming like a, you know, a bunch of drunken kids here at a college campus. And then Robert De Niro. And then um, Bob and Marty share a word. And then Bob goes up there and says, uh, Marty asked me to say a few words, so enjoy the film. <laughs> And then he goes away, and then the movie starts. And, um, I mean, that feeling of anticipation, it's the best. As I've said before, it's, it's the absolute best, because nobody's seen the film. Like, you have no idea what to expect. You know that these are your heroes. You know these are people you revere and you admire deeply, but you have no idea what's about to unfold. Although I have read the book. I heard you paint houses. So I knew the whole story. And, of course, for all of you listening, trust me, I know. No, no, I'm not going to spoil one thing about the plot. Trust me. I love all of you. I appreciate you all listening. Please do give us some love. Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. Hopefully this is our biggest podcast yet. AV on the Irishman. Trust me. I appreciate all of you listening. I'm not going to spoil anything plot-wise. But I've read the book, so I already knew everything that was going to happen, having said that. A.O. Scott, his review, which is an excellent review, which I would like to point out, my friend Mike Deesnot pointed out, he clearly ripped me off because I finished the movie at 6.43, ran outside to the halal food truck, had some lamb over rice, and then I penned my review, which read... Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is a monumental film, uh, which is elegiac. And then I went to see some other words. And clearly, as Dee's pointed out to me, Tony Scott ripped me off because A.O. Scott clearly used the words mournful. Or excuse me, yes, he used elegiac, definitely, and monumental. Anyways, more importantly in his review, which is excellent, and he's a brilliant film critic, he mentions the fact that in Goodfellas, you know, the most famous shot is the Copa shot. And, uh, you know, that's literally Henry Hill showing off to Karen just to the kind of influence he has. And it's a beautiful steady cam shot. It's been obviously revered for years. Well, this time for the Irishman, Scorsese also starts the film with a tracking shot for which he is synonymous. He, he loves those sinuous tracking shots and the way that the camera just glides and floats. Except this time, rather than Henry Hill showing off to his girlfriend, it's an old folks home. And it's a beautiful song. I kept thinking to myself, the music's going to be so good, as always. And I was actually listening to 50s music in the car as I was driving. So I said, okay, this era, Marty's going to have some great 50s music. And, of course, it's uh, The Satins, a great, great song, and The Still of the Night, which he also used in Raging Bull. There's that one scene where De Niro is pouring all the uh, booze, and he's balancing all the glasses. Uh, so I, I know that he does like that song. But it's that song playing. It's a beautiful three-minute tracking shot of an old folks home. People playing chess, shuffleboard, etc. And then it finally settles on Frank Sheeran, a clearly aged Robert De Niro. It looks like to be in his 80s, receding hairline, much wrinkled, etc. And he starts the voiceover narration and starts telling his story. So the first 40 minutes or so, it does take a little bit of adjusting to get used to the CGI because now Frank Sheeran is telling his story of back when he was growing up, in, in, not even growing up, I should say, in his 20s in Philadelphia, and how he first got mixed up with the mob and uh, Bobby Cannavale is playing. By the way, he looks exactly in the movie like Chaz Palminteri. They just give him a receding hairline like Chaz Palminteri. And he's doing a few things. And, okay, so De Niro gets moved up with him. And then all of a sudden he meets Ray Romano, who plays a lawyer. 
Of course, Ray's a, a very funny guy, but here he's playing it straight, a dramatic role, very good. And uh, that's how he ended up defending Frank Sheeran. And from there, of course, he's Buffalino. His cousin is Russell Buffalino. That is Joe Pesci's character, who's a local mob boss. By the way, Harvey Keitel is also in the film. He's playing a mob boss as far as Al Bruno. So there's some events. These guys all kind of get to know each other a little bit. And I felt this section to be fine. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the appetizer to a meal. You're kind of settling in. It's a little choppy, maybe a little bit derivative. There's a couple of things that definitely called back to Goodfellas. One about De Niro trying to get some payment from a guy. Kind of reminded me of something with Maury. Uh, just a sequence of how he's getting some money. I said, okay, it's a little bit like Goodfellas light here, but it's still enjoyable. It's fine. Um, but then the movie really starts to take off as soon as you hear Mr. Buffalino, played by Joe Pesci's character in a bowling alley, telling De Niro that their friend at the top, he's like, Hoffa? He's like, yeah, our friend at the top could use a little bit of help. And as soon as you hear the Al Pacino phone call, which you've seen in the trailer, maybe you haven't seen the trailer, good for you, but he says, hi, Frank, this is Jimmy Hoffa. I heard you paint houses. Yes, I do. And then the movie really takes off. And this is Al Pacino's best performance in a long, long time. He hasn't been this good in a movie since, I would say, Donnie Brasco in 97. And while watching the film, I kept trying to think of a comp for this guy who's, you know, my favorite actor. I met him a few years ago. He's unbelievable. I just revere the guy. But it's a, a, com- a combination of big boy caprice, Dick Tracy, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, and his performance as Lefty Ruggiero in Donnie Brasco, for which he was not nominated but should have been. And it's interesting, you know, Pacino, first time working with Scorsese, could have worked with him in Goodfellas. He originally was offered the role of Jimmy Conway, but turned it down because he didn't want to be typecast. Then ends up playing the role of Big Boy Caprice, which is even more typecast gangster, but he's, you know, hilariously over the top, and, you know, he's slapping Madonna on the ass, and he's just such a funny role. And then Donnie Brasco's character, of course, which is a guy who's an idiot, he's a clownish, but he's got some real heart. So that's the kind of uh, terrain with which Pacino is working. But he's an actor who's been criticized and I would say for good reason, for overacting at times or driven to excess. But here in this case of playing Jimmy Hoffa, it's perfect because Hoffa himself is this larger-than-life character, a guy who gives these big, blustery speeches to crowds, and he's trying to fire up the Teamsters, and a guy who's power-hungry. So if anything, it's Scorsese brilliantly using Pacino's excess to full effect because if he's over the top in his acting, well, Hoffa was over the top in the way he lived his life and the way he demonstrated the union, the way in which he despised the Kennedys. And this is where I think it's very important to note that, you know, is the film a mob epic? I suppose so. But to me, in many ways, it's a character study about Frank Sheeran and his life. And in many ways, it's a historical film. Because then the movie gets into Hoffa and the Teamsters and the Pension Fund. And if you're a fan of the movie Hoffa, which not many are, but I loved it. Uh, Jack Nicholson, David Mamet, great script. Danny DeVito directed it back in 1992. Some of those aspects started to come back together again. Hoffa's rivalry with Fitzsimmons and uh, issues with the organized crime. And then they get to the Kennedys and you have the mob influence, et cetera. You get RFK in there interviewing Hoffa and so on and so forth. But like I said, Pacino really galvanizes the screen. It's a, it's a volcanic presence. And yet, as somebody tweeted to me, what is he yelling the whole time? Well, no, here's the difference. Where in some of Pacino's performances where he can just be seen as, yes, yelling the whole time, here there's some real tenderness. And there's some wonderful scenes with him and Robert De Niro. And, you know, in Heat, they only have the two scenes together. Righteous kills and absolute atrocity, which we can now flush down the toilet. But here there's many, many scenes between Frank Sheeran playing Enforcer to, to Al Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa. And they've got just exquisite chemistry together. These two guys have been friends for a long time, in some ways perhaps competitive. They've been up for the same roles many a time, but obviously mutual respect. And when I read the book, I heard you paint houses. I remember thinking to myself, God, Pacino is going to knock Jimmy Hoffa out of the park, and he is extraordinary in the performance. Uh, from there, the story goes into their involvement, their relationship. And of course, Joe Pesci is still involved because he is Russell Buffalino, a guy who's uh, 
you know, got some connections. And uh, I don't want to give away any more of the story from there. But I would just say this. The final hour of the film, it really is, as A.A. Dow pointed out, the Scorsese of silence. You know, you've got some Scorsese hallmarks. Okay, like I mentioned, you've got the satins, uh, you know, in the still of the night. You've got the great song, Sleepwalk. He uses that perfectly. Um, you've got the slow motion montages, which for which he's known for. You've got violence. Of course, you've got violence. You've got some cold-blooded murders, pop pops, as Frank Sheeran is a very good hitman. Uh, you've got those tracking shots. You've got a lot of dark humor. I mean, it's a very funny movie. And here's what's so important. I urge all of you, you've got to see it in a theater because I had a great crowd. It's like when a comedian says, you know, how was the crowd? You know, I killed tonight. The crowd was great. It was a great crowd. Not only when I saw it the first time, when I saw it the second time, they all laughed at the right moments. And it's a really funny movie. There's at least, I'm going to say, 15 moments of open laughter in that crowd. And of course, if you've seen Goodfellas, you know how funny that movie is. But just to reiterate, honestly, it's darkly funny. And the comic timing, particularly of De Niro uh, playing the straight man, it gets a lot of good laughs in the movie. I mean, it's, it really is funny. But I think that final hour, you know, it's, it's atypical in that Scorsese is not going for a ton of jump cuts. There's a real feeling of melancholy in the film. And even when you're introduced to characters, there's this white scroll that comes up and it says exactly how the guy dies. You know, it'll say like Frank Bruno shot eight times in the head. Boom. And so there's no glamorization here of the mafia. And in, the, and in Goodfellas, you know, my friend Greg Colley texts, is better than Goodfellas. I mean, I, I get the question, but it's very, very impossible to answer because here's the point. The Irishman is not Goodfellas 2.0. It's not Casino 2.0. Goodfellas is so exhilarating. It's so exuberant. You're drunk on the craft of filmmaking and you want to go hijack a truck and shoot your gun outside like Joe Pesci. You know, Casino is about the rise and fall and it's very operatic. Obviously, there's opera music in the movie, for God's sakes, as it tells the tragedy of what happened to these guys. The Irishman is melancholy. It's elegiac. It's mournful. It's an old man looking back on his life, and it's tinged with regret and with sadness. And that's why, in many ways, you know, it's one of Scorsese's most heartfelt films. And that final hour, it really is, it feels like, you know, one of his religious epics. It feels like silence. It feels like Last Temptation of Christ. Um, long takes, static camera, no music, uh, deliberate pacing, and I thought it was beautiful. I mean, literally, there, there's a section, the last two hours of the film, I just think are so beautifully rendered. And the final 30 minutes, I will say this, I think the film belongs to Pacino, but the final 30 minutes belong to Robert De Niro. And, and it's a reminder of what a great actor he is. And Frank Sheeran's character, I mean, he's the central character ostensibly, but he's reactive. You know, he's almost like a silent party to his own life story. He just happens to be there. He just happens to be a hitman. He just happens to see all of American history. He's almost like, <laughs> like a Zelig or a Forrest Gump. You know, well, where's Frank now? Oh, Frank's now seeing this. Or Frank is now seeing, you know, Fidel Castro trying to get taken down. Uh, but the final 30 minutes really show how, um, how exquisite his acting is. And Pesci... It's great to have Joe Pesci back. Hasn't acted in a film since 2010, a Taylor Hackford movie, and he was asked afterwards the press comments what it was like. He said, come on, what's it like? I just, whatever Marty tells me to do, I do it. It's easy. Um, but his character, again, if you're expecting Pesci of Goodfellas, some live wire, volcanic, eruptive force, he's much more controlled and he's much more measured. Ultimately, the questions people are going to ask is, one, what about the running time? Is it too long? And I will say this. Could he have cut a few scenes? Sure. It's listed at three and a half hours, but the credits are 10 minutes. So it's 3.20, which is, you know, overall three and a half. That's longer than Titanic. That's longer than Lord of the Rings. It's longer than Godfather Part Two. But those are all great films, as is, you know, Gone with the Wind or, um, you know, other films of that ilk. And could Marty have cut 10, 15 minutes? Sure. 
Like I said, the first 40 minutes, a little bit derivative. You could have taken a few scenes out. Sure, of course you could have. But you know what? As Ben Lyons texted me, why is everyone always in a rush to shorten things down? Like, why is everyone wanting to post Instagram stories because it's only under a minute? Why can't you just post something else? On Twitter, why was there such an outcry going from 140 characters to 280? You've already got the babysitter, as Ben texted me. Like, what's the difference? Why wouldn't you just enjoy more? If you could have more of Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and a film by Martin Scorsese, well, then why wouldn't you just savor it a little bit more? And that's how I felt about it. I never actually checked my watch. I actually checked that. And the first thing I actually looked at my watch at one point, because I'm like, I'm going to do this review. And this is the only time in the film, I wouldn't say a lull, but I'm curious when it's going to end. And when I looked at my watch, that was at the three-hour mark. So I'm like, okay. In my head, I'm like, all right, just, just, a, just a direction point. We've got about 20 minutes left here that he is wrapping things up. But that wasn't out of boredom. It wasn't like a sigh or anything like that. Uh, and the second time I, I watched it, I felt zero lulls because at that point, I know exactly what I'm getting and I'm prepared for it. And I thought it was brilliant in every way around. The bottom line is this. It's a masterpiece from Scorsese. It isn't too long. It fits with it. And in fact, if you watch what's so popular right now in the world, television, right? Serialized viewing. So if this was, this was on Netflix, which it's going to be November 27th, and it was three one-hour and 10-minute installments, you'd have no issue with it, would you? So I don't want to hear any belly aching about, oh, it's three and a half hours, because you know what? People are watching Fleabag in six hours and loving that. It's winning Emmy, you know, Emmy Awards here. So um, I didn't have an issue with the length. The other issue is the CGI. My man Carlton here wants to boycott the film. He doesn't like the CGI in the trailer. Carlton, come on. So it, it does take a little bit of getting used to, okay? First 30 minutes, you are kind of looking at these faces, and maybe at times it looks a little digitally altered. You say, okay, you know, De Niro's face looks a little bit expressionless, a little bit like Gumby. Uh, and in fact, there's one flashback that I would have omitted from the film with De Niro in the, in the war that I think, hang on a second, he's supposed to be 20. He looks like he's 40. I would just take him that scene out. But you do get used to it. And it is effective because rather than another actor playing Robert De Niro as a 30-year-old or like terrible prosthetics, I mean, we've, we've seen bad makeup. Look at Jennifer Connelly in A Beautiful Mind. Like, you want to see bad makeup, I'll show you bad makeup. It, you can go with it. You know what I mean? Maybe there's a little bit of suspension and disbelief. But overall, I thought the CGI was highly effective. I thought the de-aging was very good. Aside from a couple of minor quibbles, it did not take away from the film. It enhanced the film. And Pacino in particular, I think he looks a lot younger. When he's playing Hoffa in that era, it's fine. The one issue can't overcome, and Scorsese pointed this out at the press conference, is that you know there's a couple scenes where De Niro's got to like kick a guy. And it's like, listen, you can't be kicking like you're 74. You've got to kick like you're 34. Even there's one scene he had to remind Pacino, when you jump out of that chair, you have to jump out like you're a 49-year-old. And he joked, Pacino's 79. On take two, he got it down to about 62. <laughs> He's like, but that's a hard thing. You've got to have the movement. You have to have the vitality of a younger man. So that's not perfect, but it's better than the other option, which is to have other people. You know what I mean? This isn't Goodfellas where there's a young Henry Hill and then he's Ray Liotta. It would have been Ray Liotta playing himself the whole way. Um, so for any concerns about running time, don't worry about it. For concerns about de-aging, don't worry about it. Ultimately, it's a brilliant film, and in many ways, it feels like a career summation. It's Scorsese looking back at his work and maybe just maybe making a bit of an apology for maybe glamorizing mafia life over the years or violence. Rebecca Keegan, who is brilliant, we'll get her on the podcast at some point. I uh, did some work with her at the Oscars a couple of years ago. I, so when I turned on my phone after I knew it was safe, after I'd already seen the film, and now I'm curious what critics are saying because I'm loving the movie. And by the way, I turned to the woman next to me. I said, what do you think? She goes, uh, she goes, I thought Pacino stole the movie. I said, me too. I thought he was brilliant. And uh, she goes, but I thought it was a little bit long. I was like, yeah, I mean, it, it is three hours and a half hours. She said, I didn't think it needed to be that long. I turned to the other woman next to me with the back issues. I'm like, how's your back? She's like, I'm okay. I go, what do you think? She goes, oh, it was amazing. And the guy next to me is like, man, how about that? And I'm not going to ruin it for you. I go, how about that scene between Pacino and Junior? She's like, oh my God, amazing. How about the scene with Pacino and Pacino? Like, Once you start saying, how about this? How about that? How about that? That's how you know how good the movie is. Uh, so I saw Rebecca Keegan and she tweeted, this is Scorsese's Unforgiven, which is a perfect way to describe the movie. You know, a guy who's 
Listen, if you think about Eastwood in, in uh, Unforgiving, you know, all these movies playing cowboys, and he looks back, and that's about the toll that violence creates. In many ways, this is Scorsese's Unforgiven, looking back at the toll that violence creates. I think in some ways it's like Scorsese's No Country for Old Men, a bunch of old guys looking back. And it's not necessarily a mob movie. It's more about memory and loss and regret. And for me, it's the best picture of 2019. I can't imagine there being a better film come out this year. Joe, the floor is yours because I have to cough and drink some water. Go ahead. <laughs> First and foremost, just happy that you got there safely and on time and that you didn't go on Twitter because uh, I, I saw the initial reviews just pouring in and I don't think I saw one, not just negative review, but each review was glowing for it. I, I, I guess I just have to ask, you, you talked about the de-aging, talked about the runtime, you talked about just the amount of years that all of the story takes place over. I just have to ask, um, what about the Oscars? How do you think this movie, your initial reaction, how everyone will fare? Do you think Martin Scorsese will get Best Director nomination? Do you think they'll get Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor for Al Pacino and Robert De Niro? What do you think right now after having just saw the movie? Great question, Joe. It's the first thing my wife called me when I turned my phone on and it, and it was 643 and she's like, how was it? I go, oh, it's in the end credits. Give me a minute. It's like, okay. And then afterwards, as I'm eating the, uh, the uh, lamb over rice, the halal food truck, she goes, Oscars? And, and in my head, I'm like, listen, again, I get the question, but I'm like, I just saw the movie. Can I, can I just take five minutes? Because then like, you know, I got Jesse Palmer being like, what, is it better than Goodfellas? Like, hey, just, let, me just in, let me just enjoy the movie, okay? I just had an incredible film experience. You know what I mean, every film of Martin Scorsese is an incredible experience. You need to kind of, you know, even as my cousin said, I'm so glad you're seeing it twice because he goes, his movies, you got to see them at least twice. You got to see them three times in the theater, by yourself, phone off, in one uninterrupted setting, right? You're going you to let it wash over you. So when I went home, I kind of started to think, okay, Oscar stuff, because you know the way these things are, they're so political. And I said, listen, Netflix is going to just hype the crap out of this thing, right? Because it's $160 million. If you want to see some marketing, they're going to put every ounce of creative muscle they have behind this to prove we can have a best picture winner with the greatest living director of, you know, Marty's got eight best directors. Director nominations. In answer to your question, Joe, I think I'll get nominated Best Director. I think I'll get nominated Best Picture. The acting is where it gets interesting. Now, Rebecca, in her review, she said for her that Pesci floored her. And my wife, after I saw it with her the second time, I said, What'd you think? She goes, I thought Pesci was the strongest of the three because it, you know, I go, maybe it's just because I haven't seen him in so long. She goes, No, it's a reminder of what a good actor he is, and it's completely different of his other roles. He's so subtle in the movie, he's so controlled. So, my best bet is this Picture Director, here's a few unsung heroes for you. The screenplay by Steve Zalian, our friend Jim Miller, who's so great. We're going to get Jim on the pockets at some point. Jim said, anybody who thinks Steve Zalian isn't in the Mount Rushmore of screenwriters, here's your evidence. Zalian won an Oscar for Schindler's List. He also wrote and directed Searching for Bobby Fischer, a film that me and Tim Kirchin love. He also co-wrote Gangs of New York. And like I said, I read the book. I'm going to talk to my buddy Ryan Rosillo about this because he's read the book as well. We both were like, this is going to be a tough film to adapt. So Zalian, I think, did a remarkable job of streamlining the narrative. And I'm sure a lot of those scenes were, were ad-libbed. There's, by the way, some great interplay with Pacino and uh, a mob boss played by Stephen Graham. If you're a fan of Boardwalk Empire, he played Al Capone. And that guy's terrific. There's, there's some really good scenes between Pacino and him. And in my head, I'm like, I don't know if Zalian wrote these or these are ad-lib. Maybe a combination of both. I'm sure Pacino is very uh, adept at ad-libbing as is De Niro. But I think Zalian should get nominated for screenplay. The Cinematography by Rodrigo Prieto. He has worked with Marty before. He was Oscar-nominated for Silence. Very interesting with Marty and his DPs. You know, Michael Chapman shot uh, Raging Bull. Uh, Michael Ballhaus did Goodfellas. 
Uh, Robbie Richardson did Casino, and now he's fallen in love with Prieto, who's now worked with a couple of times. And I think the cinematographer will definitely get nominated. And of course, as Alec Baldwin says, Martin Scorsese's secret weapon is always Thelma Schoonmaker. And it was such a good erudite crowd. Like when we're watching the credits, by the way, no one leaves the credits. So, you know, it's a good crowd. We want to soak it in. We all paid hundreds of dollars for this thing. When you see Thelma Schoonmaker edited by the whole crowd starts cheering, everyone knows how important she is to Marty. She's worked with the films for 30 years. She should get nominated. Ellen Lewis, not that there's an Oscar nomination for casting, but again, a long time. I'm a Scorsese acolyte. She's a part of the mix. So I think it'll get a lot of nominations, and I think the, the Irishman is definitely going to put it behind it. Here's the hard one, Joe, is the acting. So I think Pesci gets nominated supporting actor. Here's where it gets tricky. I'd love to see De Niro and Pacino both nominated for Best Actor. And like I said, I think Pacino's extraordinary in the film, but I don't think De Niro should get overlooked either because you know they're, they're both lead performances. And just like what happened with Green Book, both Mahershala and Ali and Viggo Mortensen, they're both lead roles, okay? Yeah, you could say it's Viggo's story, but Mahershala's in the movie almost as much as Viggo Mortensen is. That's, that's a lead role. But they put him in supporting where he ends up winning the Oscar. So a part of me said, well, maybe they'll try to push De Niro for lead and put Pacino and Pesci both as supporting, and then maybe you know both of them will get nominations. Maybe Pacino could win. But I'd love to see Scorsese win a second Oscar. It's already a crime. He's only ever won once, and that was for The Departed. And Pacino's only ever won once, which was for Scent of a Woman. And Pesci's won once for Goodfellas. So I said, man, this would be great to see if... In an ideal world, Bob's up for best actor and Al and Joe are up for supporting actor and Pacino could win again would be awfully nice to see. Because let's be honest, De Niro and Pacino have not made great films the last couple decades. This has not been uh, you know, a strength for them. So to see them both rekindled, and I think a large part because of the fact they're working with Marty, you know, he brings out the best in them and, and they all kind of rose the challenge. That was the biggest thing for me as I think about it now is that you know, this could have gone wrong in so many ways. You, you mean, you're telling, let me give you some by the numbers here, Joe, as a sportscaster. You know, th- this movie, $160 million, $100 million is supposed to be from Paramount. Paramount turned it down. It took, most films take 60 to 90 days to shoot. This took 108 days to shoot, okay? There's 300 scenes in the movie. Think about that. You know how many camera setups that is? Like, that's, this is an astonishingly big film for this era. You, you do not get this. That's why in many ways, it, it makes sense, actually, that's Netflix, because it could be a, it could have been a Netflix six-hour miniseries. Just made it longer. You're like, all right, watch it in two-hour installments. But of course, Scorsese is so in love with the, the silver screen and cinema, you know, he wants to make his movies. But it's funny, too, in terms of the cast. You know, the best line is what he said when he came out there. He said... Um, he said, I first had uh, Mean Streets premiere at the New York Film Festival 43 years ago, and now I'm back with the same cast. And that got a big laugh from the whole crowd. By the way, if you're a big Harvey Keitel fan, which Rebecca Angel tweeted me she is, he's only in the movie three scenes. It's very much a ceremonial role. I love Harvey Keitel, but it's a very small role. But it, it is good to see him reunited with Marty, of course, from uh, Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. Um, but yeah, I, I think the Oscars can be a contender. Here, here's the, the favorites right now. I'll tell you right now. Renee Zellweger's a favorite right now for Best Actress for Judy. That just opened. I can't wait to see that. Joaquin Phoenix right now is the favorite for Best Actor. That film, Joker, is opening Friday. Uh, Jojo Rabbit right now is going to be heavily in the lead because that won the Audience Award at TIFF. But I think The Irishman is going to have some serious clout behind it. Not only people are sentimental and appreciative that these great actors and this director are back again, but because it really is that great a film. Like, if you look at Unforgiven, yeah, that won Best Picture because people said, yeah, it's a career summation for Clint, and it really is extraordinary and worthy of the acclaim. And, and I do think Netflix will do everything in their power. They, they released Roma, and Roma got nominated for Best Picture. That's history for Netflix. Now, if Netflix can say, hey, by the way, we actually made a film that won Best Picture. Okay, we didn't cave to AMC and all those theaters. And make no mistake, all of you listening, you've got to go see this in a the theater. 
Okay, I, I feel bad if you're living like Lawrence, Kansas, or Peoria, or Franklin, Wisconsin. Get to a big city because November first, it's going to be playing, but only in small independent cinemas. They could not reach a deal with AMC or those major chains because Netflix has had a long simmering feud with them. Scorsese even called AMC, the person is like begging these guys, please put my movie in your theater. They said no. We don't like the fact that Netflix can put their movie in theaters and then four weeks later put it you know, on uh, on home video. This shouldn't be that way because other films have to wait 60 days or 90 days, whatever the uh, stipulations are. And those films have to release their box office grosses. Netflix doesn't have to. So The Irishman's going to be out November 1st and no one will know how much money it makes. We all know it costs 160 I don't know how much it's going to gross. I don't know how many subscribers are going to pay 13 bucks a month just to watch it, but that's Netflix's business. So they very much have a, have a cutthroat love. And that's where, Joe, this could be interesting the Oscars. Like Spielberg, again, close friend of Scorsese's. He hates Netflix, right? He's very openly said, listen, these films should not be up for best you can't just put your movie in, in in 50 movie theaters for two weeks and say, okay, now we're qualified for a major awards run. No, no, no. The rest of us are putting this in 2,000 screens. You do that too. You can't just put your film on Netflix and everyone sees it. That's cheating. So I do think there will be some blowback for people who are like, oh, should we vote for the Irishman for best picture? Well, no. Screw Netflix. But then a lot of these actors and directors and producers and cinematographers who are working in movies funded by Netflix. So I, I really don't know, to be honest with you. That. We're going to get Scott Fiber from The Hollywood Reporter at some point on the podcast. So maybe he can explain. Are, are people generally in Hollywood pro-Netflix? Are they anti-Netflix? Does it help the movie? Does it hurt the movie? Bottom line is, uh, like I said, it's, it's a monumental film. That is absolutely incredible. And hearing you talk about the film and everything that it went through, I'm just glad that they actually made it for how Martin Scorsese wanted it to be made with the CGI, with all the extra money. He could have cut corners. He could have hired different actors to play younger characters, but it just sounds like him doing this and staying true to his vision was the right move. That is an outstanding point by you because at the talk he gave, so again, here's the timeline. I see it Friday night and then went and saw it again Saturday with my wife and then Scorsese had a talk afterwards. So again, people like the economics of this story. My friend Tom Monfaletto said the story of how I paid so much money for it and had 10 heart attacks is one of his favorite moments ever on Cinephile. Let's break down the numbers again. $450. So this is how I rationalize it. I'm going to say it was $150 for the ticket for opening evening or Opening day, you could say, Friday. And then 100 bucks each for my wife to see it. So now we're up to what? 150 plus 100, 250, 350. And then to see Scorsese talk, well, that's 50 bucks a piece, which was one hour long. So there's your 450. So I think if I rationalize it, 150 to see it once, 100 to see it a second time, 50 to hear Marty talk makes sense. And the talk that he gave, he was mainly focusing on you know old films that have influenced him. And he and Ken Jones were showing some clips in the New York Film Festival. But one of the points he made, which I'm so happy Joe brought up, he says, I really want to thank Netflix because not only are they a home now for for filmmakers like me and Noah Baumbach, speaking of Oscar contenders, Marriage Story is supposed to be huge. Uh, Adam Driver is going to be up for Best Actor. Scarlett Johansson, never been nominated for an Oscar. She's going to get nominated. And Baumbach could be up for Best Director. I'm going to try to go see that next Friday. Because again, the woman next to me, Melanie B., she was so nice. I mentioned something about Marriage Story. She goes, well, I have an extra ticket. I go, that's incredible. So I'm going to try to go see that uh, this Friday, as a matter of fact. I'm, I'm doing the fight for DAZN on Saturday, but hopefully Friday can sneak up for a couple hours and uh, go see Marriage Story. But anyway, Scorsese very openly said, thank you to Netflix, not only for the money, and everyone laughed, hey, thanks for the $160 million, but they didn't meddle. And he goes, now within the studio system, you know, they're, they're going to tell you, hey, listen, we'll give you $100 million, but you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And now the way movies are made, he said, listen, the indie movies are for $5 million, $2 million, that's it. You can't get like a $50 million movie made. Casino was like a $50 million movie, because you can't get that. It's either superhero movie for $80 million, $100 million, $150 million, or indie for five, maybe 10. We can't get you a Manchester by the sea for $20 million. So he goes, that's why Netflix was huge. The fact they just gave him the budget and it literally gave him final cut. 
And you say, well, of course, he's the greatest director of all time. Yeah, but that doesn't happen for everybody. And, and he goes, they could have just told me, you know, it's got to be two and a half or we want it to be two. But he's like, no, you do whatever you want. You, you make it as long as you want. Like you said, with the actors you want. He even joked at one point, he showed a scene from a, a, a movie, Joanna Hogg. I can't remember the name of it. Souvenir came out earlier this year. It's a movie she made a couple of years ago with Tom Hiddleston. And he kind of fumbled the name. He goes, here's the guy. Uh, and then Ken Jones helps me. He goes, Tom Hiddleston. He goes, he goes, I'm sorry. I don't want any of these new actors. And everyone started laughing. I'm like, that's totally the case. Like He literally works with Leo five times, De Niro nine times. And then I think Ellen Lewis is critical, the casting director. I'm positive. She said, listen, here's this guy, Sebastian Maniscalco. He's this Italian comedian. Do you want to meet him? Sure. Like Marty's not sitting there watching Netflix specials going, oh, I want to put that guy in my movie. Like he's got people around him who are saying, hey, have you thought about this? Because even the supporting cast are people he knows from his projects. Ray Romano, um, you know, was in vinyl. Uh, as I mentioned, Stephen Graham was from Boardwalk Empire. Bobby Cannavale played Gip Rossetti, Boardwalk Empire. Scorsese says he executive produced Boardwalk Empire and directed the first couple episodes. Vinyl was a terrible show, but Cannavale was in that, as was Ray Romano. So I'm like, he's literally, like all the actors in his movies are all people he knows, are all his friends. Like He's not looking to cast new ventures. So the fact that Netflix trusts him and says, okay, here's the, you, we're not going to tell you what hot actor to put into it. I'm sure Robert Pattinson's a good actor, but they're not saying, hey, listen, get Pattinson in the movie. We got to get some teeny boppers to watch the film. No, no, no do whatever you want. And uh, to have that kind of creative control really is astonishing. So after the talk, which, uh, like I said, it was okay. I, I wish it was more about his career, but it was more him just talking about films and talking about the New York Film Festival, what it means to him. But it was still cool just to hear him speak. And, and he, by the way, he's so funny. At the end, Ken Jones says to him, it's a 5.30 Saturday evening. He says, we got to go. And Marty's like, what do you mean? Like, we're here. We, where are we going to go? And everyone starts laughing. And they're like, oh, we got a new film coming, Pedro Almodovar. And he's like, all right, fine, fine. For Pedro, it's okay. Um, and I try to get rid of the tickets. By the way, this is a sad indictment. Maybe everyone's watching college football, but I did tweet. Hey, whoever wants tickets, DM me. I tried to give them to Joe. He said no. I tried to give them to my friend Claire. She said no. Give them to Scott Rogowski. No. So I literally, I asked somebody, I go, in Toronto, they always have a standby line. So thankfully, they have one here in New York. And I just asked somebody, where's the box? Where's the standby line? And I just walk up to the first two people in line, a guy and a gal. And I said, hey, you guys trying to go see Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory starring Antonio Banderas? They're like, yes. I go, here you go. You can have my tickets. She's like, oh my God. Big hug. She's so excited. And uh, I said, let's just take a picture just for fun. Let me just tweet this out. Like, yeah, sure, no problem. I emailed the tickets. Afterwards, she did email me. And she goes, hey, can you send me the picture? And then I actually thought, conniving person that I am, hey, Mickey, can you do me a huge favor? Mickey Acuna is her name. Can you actually subscribe to Cinephile? Right? I gave you two free tickets. Can you just do me a favor? Subscribe to Cinephile. Here's the, here's the address. Go to Apple Podcasts. Rate and review if you like. But just please subscribe. Right? At least I can feel like I gave away two tickets. <laughs> and at least I got a couple subscribers out of it. She's like, no problem. Anything I can do. So that is the beauty of the film festival. People passing along. Mel B sitting next to me. She gave me tickets to Marriage Story. I passed along my tickets to Pain and Glory. And by the way, for all those listening to Cinephile right now, let's keep it moving. Okay? This Thursday, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is a great Robert Altman film. I say great. I've never even seen it. That's why I want to go see it at the film festival. I want to see it on the big screen. Stars Warren Beatty and Julie Christie. I'm not going to be unable to see it. I've got to coach my son use of soccer. Soccer, family first. So uh, DM me, Adnan S. Furk, or DM me at Cinephile Pod. Do you want tickets to go see McCabe and Mrs. Miller playing this Thursday, 3.15 Eastern uh, at, uh, I don't know if it's playing at Alice Telly, but it's playing in New York City. Just DM us. If not, I'm going to have to drive to the theater again and just find somebody to give them to. But honestly, it's a great uh, Western classic film. Hopefully somebody will want to go see that. So I don't know, Joe, if you've ever been to the New York Film Festival. I know you're obviously from Minnesota. I don't know how many years you've been in the city, but it's a really fun experience. Oh, man, I, I really want to go. Uh, maybe next year, definitely, for sure. I've never been, but the, the clout that it now carries in the film world and uh, as films march towards the Oscars, it definitely seems like a really, really... New York cool event that people should go to. 
Oh, yeah. It was a phenomenal event, and I encourage all of you to go see it. And uh, thanks, by the way, to all those listening here in Cinefy. I wanted to thank Utkarsh Ambudkar, who was great. My friend Mark Simon even said, God, he was really good. So hopefully go check out his work. He's got that uh, play he's in there with... Uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda playing in, uh, on Broadway. So go ahead and, and check that out. There's my thoughts on The Irishman. Uh, hopefully I didn't spoil anything. Please, please go see it November 1st in theaters, wherever you can find it. And then it will be available on Netflix on November 27th. And uh, read a couple of reviews. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't touch anything. I mean, maybe you shouldn't either. Trust me, that's a bit to go. Because trust me, I didn't know anything. And now I'm kind of reading some reviews and kind of learning more about it, seeing people's perspectives. But certified fresh right now on Rotten Tomatoes, there's not been one bad review, 100% for 45 reviews reviews in particular guys that I like I mentioned Glaber and Matt Zoller Sites is a really good review of course he wrote the Sopranos book I liked his review a lot and I'm so glad Joe I'm so grateful you told me don't check because I, I didn't want to get poisoned either way right you don't want to hear oh they're calling it his best film because then if it you know, your expectations are already so high now they're sky high and you're going oh my god this isn't Raging Bull like I love the movie but it's not that good and I'm glad you didn't go the other way and say oh my god people are saying it's terrible the, the CGI is off the de-aging is brutal I'm like oh my god no 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 because then you question yourself as I said to Ben Lyons there's nothing better than seeing a film and not knowing anything. I said, when we were at Sundance, you know, we saw some movies and we have no idea what people are going to say. You might walk out of there and say, I hated it. And the most of the crowd loves it and the critics like it. And you go, okay, maybe I missed something or maybe I'm right. <laughs> maybe it wasn't that good, but uh, it's such a fun feeling. So if ever you can get to film festival, I, I can't recommend it enough. Those are my thoughts on The Irishman. Of course, I'm giving it for me beliefs. It's my favorite film of 2019. All right, now it's time for the entertainment news. As I mentioned, Joker is opening this Friday, and uh, the Joker premiere disinviting interview press from the Hollywood red carpet. So it's going to take place Saturday. TCL Chinese Theater now only allowing photographers access to talent and filmmakers, including Joaquin Phoenix and director Todd Phillips. The move to restrict access to interviews comes after a week of headlines about the violent and provocative nature of the film and measures to inform and protect American moviegoers as they prepare to screen it. Concerns about the Joker movie and its portrayal of the titular character's violent tendencies as a result of ostracization have sprung up since the movie's debut at the Venice Film Festival, with some expressing worry the thriller paints the central mass murderer too sympathetic. Interesting. So no print and broadcast journalist, and even more of the fact, no costumes. Early tracking suggests you can make more than $80 million domestically in its first weekend. Wow. That is a juggernaut for this kind of a film, because even though I know you think it's a superhero movie, it really isn't. It's like a crime film. It's like, you know... Dark Knight, but I don't even think it's going to have that much explosions in action. I could be wrong, but to me, it looks like a character study. And in fact, as I'm reading the review here, the film stars Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck, a lonely man suffering from a disorder that makes him an outcast in his society. The psychological thrill which follows him to the depths of mental illness has sparked conversation for its realistic gun violence and brutal scenes. I want customers to be comfortable in their surroundings. Landmark present, noting Joker's dark themes, currently 50 theaters across their body costumes generally have not been allowed, but they don't want anybody having face mask, face paint, carrying toy weapons, that kind of thing. So that's going to be scary to see, man. It's um, I, Listen, I can't wait for the film. I love it. I always think it's a precarious situation to blame violence upon film or television. But I will say, whenever I hear stories about, oh, this guy was obsessed with this movie, you know, listen, Taxi Driver, uh, John Hinckley, he used to watch the film all the time. He wanted to rescue Jodie Foster. He, you know, tried to kill Ronald Reagan. I mean, that's... I don't know, Joe. It's one that I grapple with. I love film so much, and I love cinema so much. I think there's something to truth. Having said that, if it can prevent one atrocity, um, you know what? I, I, I hope it never has an influence that could be negative, but I'm sure people sometimes are inspired by these things, as awful as that sounds. 
I think people are going into the theaters, as you kind of mentioned earlier, expecting one film when this is looking like it's going to be something completely different. And I hope art doesn't reflect reality in this case. And so I'm excited to see it, but I think it's going to be such a different film. Yeah, I uh, I echo those sentiments. Like I said, I'm going to try to see Marriage Story. In fact, Friday at the New York Film Festival. I'll try to catch Joker Monday so we can review it on next week's Cinephile. Also, Aaron Paul saying Netflix deciding it was time to end BoJack Horseman. Uh, he's an executive producer as well as a voice actor in the show. Said sadly, Netflix thought it was time to close the curtains. They gave us a home for six beautiful years. Nothing we could do about it. Streaming service has a history of killing off its shows somewhat abruptly. BoJack premiered in 2014, one of only a handful of Netflix originals to make it to six seasons. Others include House of Cards, Orange is the New Black. I've often heard it's a very good show. I'm sure I'd like it. I mean, obviously, I love Oberman. He plays the whale, I think, on the show. Will Arnett, I love. He plays the lead character. I and mean, the fact it's a wash-up actor who happens to be a horse. How can you not love that kind of storyline, Joe? Oh, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing show. I'm going to miss this show quite a bit after this season. I've seen every episode multiple times. It's uh, dark, funny really poignant but i wish it was you know going on longer than it was it's kind of a shame that netflix is pulling the plug on this all right check out bojack horseman support it in its final season mount rushmore now it's time for the Mount Rushmore of Martin Scorsese films. I mean, this is an impossibility for me. I adore the guy. He's my favorite filmmaker. I've seen every one of his movies. But somehow, some way, we're going to try to make this into just the four films of his that are the best. In fact, I'm going to go even better, and I'll give you top 10 movies of his. How about that? But Joe, do you want to start us off? Do you want to go Mount Rushmore? Or you want me to give my top 10? Because it's a little bit long. I don't want to hog the mic here. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief, but I, I know I'm struggling with, with this as well. And I've narrowed it down to... Have to have Raging Bull on there, and you have to have Goodfellas, and you have to have Taxi Driver. So the fourth one for me is kind of a toss-up between a few of his movies, but I have to go with The Departed as my fourth. Uh, you nailed it, man. The first three, I said, I absolutely agree. I'm like, there's no way you can't have Raging Bull, which is one of the greatest films of all time. Like empirically, you ask Sight and Sound or any of these film experts, pundits, whomever, they're like, yeah, uh, who else could make a film about a guy who is this brutal character who inflicts so much punishment in the ring but even more vicious outside of the ring and yet somehow some way De Niro and Scorsese end up making it a sympathetic portrait of this guy and you somehow believe in the in the thought of redemption and just the visual poetry of the film the slow motion and the music of Moscani and the acting of De Niro and Pesci and Kathy Moriarty I mean it's it's impossible not to include Raging Bull I'm with you on Taxi Driver uh film about a lonely cabbie up for vengeance again I mean it's it's one of the templates for Joker I mean clearly Todd Phillips even said he was inspired by the film it's perfectly captured by Paul Schrader in this original script it came out of him like an animal and it just depicts those mean streets that those guys lived in the 70s and the fact that Travis thinks he can be this avenging angel for Betsy and only to find things go horribly awry it's the best film ever about loneliness and urban alienation. You mentioned Goodfellas. I said earlier, it's, there's no film more exhilarating than that. There's no film I've ever seen more than Goodfellas. There's no more enjoyable film than Goodfellas. To me, it's a black comedy. It's, it's a great, humorous movie, and it's violent and bloody and 
funny and all of those in equal measure and yet epic in scope. And again, it's Scorsese's like, literally it's going to film school, watching that movie and the montages and the jump cuts and the verse of the music and uh, Clapton's Layla and all the rest of it. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. So you're right. The number four slot's the hard one. So let's go backwards. Number 11, I've got Wolf of Wall Street. Again, one of Scorsese's funniest movies, three-hour tour de force there from DiCaprio, featuring some of his funniest acting, especially the whole Quaalude sequence. Number 10, I've got Cape Fear. 14 years, Counselor. You forget how great De Niro is in that role. It's a boom movie. It's a B-movie, but it's done perfectly. I love the original as well with Robert Mitchum, but the updated one, Scorsese really piles on the uh, pyrotechnics, especially that final sequence in the boat. As he said, I kind of want to make a Spielberg-type movie. And he does that in the final sequence, but it's very dark, showing all these fissures uh, within that uh, family. Jessica Lange, Juliet Lewis, I mean, the scene where she sucks De Niro's thumb. I mean, come on, forget about it. Number nine is The, the Departed, maybe a little bit lower than others might think. I like it a lot. It's very entertaining film for me. I just don't like the fact it was set in Boston, right? Come on. Marty's going to have a New York movie in his top four. Uh, number eight is Age of Innocence, the one that's often forgotten. When I went to the bathroom after the second time I saw it, the people in line were talking about the fact, and they weren't criticizing. They said, well, it's too bad there's no real strong female roles in The Irishman. And the one guy said, he goes, how great is The Age of Innocence? And of course, I jumped into the conversation. I said, dude, I love that film. No one ever talks about it, but it's one of the most beautiful period pieces I've ever seen. And he goes, yeah. And Michelle Pfeiffer and Winona Ryder were both perfection in the movie. I said, yeah, Winona Ryder was actually nominated for supporting actress that year. And it's one of the things about Scorsese. He often gets criticized for not enough female roles. Well, I'll say this. If, if there can be a quibble with the Irishman, there are no you know, female roles of substance. Anna Paquin is in the movie, but it's a very small role. She's virtually mute. And in fact, some of his best films do have female roles. It's an unfair criticism of him. Lorraine Bracco as Karen in Goodfellas, Oscar nominated. Um, you think of Sharon Stone in Casino. She's fantastic. Um, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. Kathy Moriarty in Raging Bull. Sandra Bernhardt in The King of Comedy. Alan Burstyn. Alice doesn't live here anymore. That's a rare example where it's actually a female lead. So he's actually had plenty of those. But Age of Innocence, I really think, is a beautifully rendered film. Number seven of Gangs, is New York, of Gangs of New York. Unfortunately, there is a weakness here. That is the whole Cameron Diaz role. It's underwritten. The scenes with her and DiCaprio aren't strong enough, which is why I don't have it in my top four. But I love the scope of that film, the, the amount of American history he's telling, and and Daniel Day-Lewis, one of the great performances ever in a Scorsese film as Bill the Butcher. That leads me to number six, King of Comedy. Scott Rogowski wants us number one. King of Comedy is perennially underrated. And again, Todd Phillips used this movie very much as inspiration for Joker. He said, I want to do a story with a stand-up comic, very much like Rupert Pupkin, De Niro's character, who ends up hijacking the talk show host. And of course, in the updated film in Joker, the talk show host is played by... Robert De Niro. So very funny the way that Todd Phillips is kind of playing off a film history and making an updated version of King of Comedy. If you've never seen it, it's one of, you know, Scorsese's even said, he thinks it might be De Niro's best performance. King of Comedy, he is so good. Thank Rupert Popkin, this comedian who wants to be big but doesn't have the talent or the work ethic to do so. So that's where it gets very, very tricky here, Joe. Now I kept wrestling with it and I said, okay, if I put Mean Streets at number four, people are going to accuse me of being nostalgic. And if I put Irishman number four, people are going to you know, accuse me of being a prisoner of the moment. So I wrestled with it. I fought with it. Ultimately, I'm going to put Mean Streets number five and the Irishman number four. That's right. Wow. Hot off the presses. Scorsese's No Country for Old Men. I'm going to put it in my Mount Rushmore films. I've seen it twice. I'll be honest, Joe. If it was only the one time, I probably would have still said Mean Streets, which I've seen at least you know six, seven times. But seeing it a second time, it really feels epic and spoke. It, it feels like a career summation. There's so many different levels with which it operates and which it works. And I, listen, I can't wait to see it a third time. So 
For now, I'm putting the Irishman at number four and Mean Streets, which again, listen, this hurts me to put it at number five because this this was the birth of De Niro and Scorsese. This, you know, Harvey Keitel basically playing Marty's alter ego. It's semi-autobiographical. You know, what's the matter with you? This guy's a mook, a mook. What's a mook? I mean, there's so many lines that I quote from that movie. I just went to the San Gennaro Festival in Little Italy the whole time I kept thinking about Mean Streets. So it's really hard for me not to put it in there. I think a lot of people like you put The Departed very high, but I don't think Mean Streets gets enough love. I'm going to go Mean Streets at number five. Irishman, my man, number four. The Bada Binge. All right, now it's time for The Bada Binge. Once again, thanks to Alan Sepinwall, Matt Zoller cites their book, The Soprano Sessions, is one that I'm using as a resource here as you look back at the greatest series of all time. Season six, episode one begins with a bang. That's right, Junior shooting Tony in the torso at close range. As the fellows write, director Tim Van Patten cuts to a God's eye view shot of fat, bloody Tony lying on the kitchen floor, laboring to hoist his bathroom scale certified to an 80 pounds high enough to grab the wall phone and call 911. HBO insisted on referring to both as season six for contractual purposes, but this is a big episode. The fact that Tony gets shot again, this time it's Junior who does it, is shocking. Even as Tony once told Dr. Melford, there's only two outcomes for guys like him, dead or in the can. Still to see him shot. And Junior's dementia now has him convinced that little pussy Malanga, the man responsible for Tony and Junior's feud in the pilot, is backing out for revenge. That's when he shoots Tony, he says, Malanga! Bizarre scene. And you go, oh my God, he just shot his nephew. Uh, Tony at the time, by the way, earlier in the episode, has stopped insisting now that it's a retirement community. He, he's effectively admitting that it's a nursing home where he put Livia there. And the whole episode, in fact, really focuses on Robert Fanaro, who's playing Eugene, this guy who's trying to get out of the mob world. He's trying to go straight, so to speak, and just leave the world, but instead he ends up killing himself. And you think that's the episode. It's about this you know, somewhat minor character hanging himself, but no, it's really just a way to focus on the fact that Tony gets shot. And that gets to some of the more audacious episodes ever of The Sopranos. Join the Club, Season 6, Episode 2, written by David Chase. And now you've got a whole dream sequence. You go, really? Another dream sequence from The Sopranos? But this time, it's even better. Because now Tony, he sounds like James Gandolfini. He's got a wife who's not Carmela. He's got a pair of younger kids. And all of a sudden, he's on a business trip to Costa Mesa, California. And he can sleep with a traveling salesperson. And he loses his nerve and says, I could even be some other guy tonight and get away with the whole shebang. But no, I blow it. He loses his wallet. And now you've got Tony in this alternate universe. And before you wonder what the hell's going on, you go back to seeing Tony in the hospital bed and realize he's off dreaming that, in fact, what if he was an optic salesman? What if he was Kevin Finnerty, a heating salesman who apparently resembles both Tony and inadvertently swaps briefcases and identities with this alternate Tony? And you can imagine, as the guys say, the crowd that doesn't like these episodes, less yak and more whack and wouldn't like it. But I thought it was beautifully done. And the fact that you've got Tony being judged for his terrible choices, landing in the ICU bed, and now you've got a version of Tony who's much more meek, who's much more pathetic. And at one point when he's asked for his name and he's told that he has Alzheimer's, Tony slash Finnerty says, what does it matter? I'm not going to know myself soon anyways. Um, it's also features some great acting by Carmela in which the, the soundtrack is playing Tom Petty's American Girl and she starts talking about regrets and she says to him, that was a horrible thing to say. Of course, Tony's unconscious. He says, that was a horrible thing to say. It's a sin. I'll be judged for it. You're a good father. You care about your friends. Yes, it's been rough between us. I don't know. Our hearts got so hardened against each other. I don't know why, but you are not going to hell. You're coming back here. I love you. And you got a last glimpse of Tony or Finnerty or whoever the hell he is looking out the window and Moby's, when it's cold, I'd like to die playing on the soundtrack. Pretty daring scene and a daring episode from The Sopranos to show Tony as if he's another guy. 
Episode three is called Complicit. Again, uh, he's still lying there in the hospital bed. This time I thought it was a little bit melodramatic. It's almost like a, a TV show where they start giving everyone their moment to talk to the dying characters. You've had Carmela's moment. You've got Meadow's moment. You've got AJ's moment. So I actually didn't really like this episode. I thought at this point, you know what? The Finnerty stuff I found fascinating. The stuff of Tony lying there and the fact that now, um, you know, you've got everyone being affected by the fact he could be dead. I'm like, you know, I, I didn't like that stuff as much. Although you do get some some pretty funny scenes of Silvio. And now Silvio's playing the acting uh, tough guy. He's the acting Don. And he's got his asthma. It's affecting him. And Polly's breaking his balls. It's a real pain in the ass. Um, even you got Chris afterwards, after Tony comes to, he's telling him that, hey, you know what? This movie producer thing that he's working on, the digital horror fic about a, about a eviscerated mobster who reassembles himself and kills his people with a meat cleaver. He grotesquely involves the memory of Adriana. Christopher himself gave up as a snitch. He says, you owe me this. Like Tony finally comes to, and he's got his nephew saying, hey, listen, you better bankroll this thing because you know what? You owe me. We killed Adriana. Now you're back. But uh, again, the whole episode there, the monks talking to Tony as Finnerty, it's a, it's a really uh, exceptional episode. And I do think a really strong one and a strong way to start that final season of season six, part one. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. This was a lot of fun. Trust me. I had a lot to empty the tank, so I'm so glad I was able to do this. I'm so grateful to all of you. So please do subscribe, rate, and review, and spread the love. Um, honestly, this was a lot of fun. And next time, like I said, we're going to talk about Marriage Story, new film from Noah Baumbach. That's actually opening in theaters December 6th. It's a Netflix movie, but I'm hoping to see it at the New York Film Festival this Friday. Hopefully talk about Joker as well. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.